Who out there is midway through their dry January? Whether you're in it for a detox or you're looking to kickstart a shift in your drinking habits for the long term, having a fridge full of delicious alcohol-free options makes it so much easier to stay away from booze. I speak from personal experience, of course, and Groovy makes some of my go-to alcohol-free craft beers and wines. These days, I just drink Groovy because I love the taste. Whether it's their hazy IPA, the creamy stout, or the award-winning sparkling wines, Groovy drinks are also a great option for anybody on a health kick as we look ahead to the new year. All their products contain less than 60 calories and have zero added sugar. You can get your Groovy at www.getgroovy.com. That's Groovy spelled G-R-U-V-I, or find them in a variety of specialty and liquor stores throughout North America. Use their store finder to discover a stockist near you. You can also use the code SOBERCURIOUS10 to get 10% off your first online order. Plus, join me and Groovy for a special Dry Jan workshop on January 19th, 2022. Find all the details at their website, that's getgroovy.com. Welcome back to the Sober Curious podcast. I'm your host, Ruby Warrington, and my guest on today's episode is Shane Kish, who is a longtime member of the Sober Curious community and my co-moderator in the Sober Curious book Facebook group. Shane was the first person to ever show up at a Sober Curious writers group that I used to host, and he found my work having been searching for a way to think about quitting drinking that actually spoke to him. He's gone on to use a harm reduction approach to addressing his alcohol and drug abuse, and he explains here what this has looked like in his life. One thing I love about his attitude and why I value his presence in the Sober Curious Facebook group so much is that he is all about being gentle with yourself, being patient, and giving yourself the compassion that you need as you figure this stuff out. Whether you're sober or sober curious, this is not an easy path. None of us are perfect, and trial and error is a part of the process. This is Shane's message, his mission, and his truth, and this is my conversation with him. Shane, welcome to the Sober Curious podcast. Hi, Ruby. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to be chatting with you today. Um, Shane, let's dive in here. As far as, as far as I know, you grew up in a bar. <laughs> and yeah, I would love, and I've, I and I've read, I've, you know, I have read little bits and pieces of writing you've done around that. And just the, um, the imagery that you create and the kind of, I don't know, just the, um, the atmosphere that you describe growing up in is so... I think telling potentially about your where your sober curious journey begins in a way. So I'd love if you could maybe just share, just show us, show us little Shane for a minute, um, growing up in a bar. Absolutely. I'm not sure that little Shane is any different than like big Shane, really, like propelled by colors and music and like all of that stuff. But um, so I'm from like a small town outside of Pittsburgh, like halfway between Pittsburgh and Erie. And I had this like kind of shady Hungarian grandpa. He was a boxer. He won all this money uh, in a fight. And then with that money, he bought this like old rundown hotel and he turned it into a country music venue. So what was really nuts is there was nothing around. And this would have been like in the late 80s and early 90s. Oh, I'm sorry. It would have been the like early 80s is when this would have happened. So country music was kind of weird then. It was like kind of poppy and like, you know, the songs were kind of hokey. And so, you know, it was a weird time in country music, but they didn't, they needed somewhere to perform. 
So all of these super famous people came through, like Dolly Parton, Willie Nelson, like the Del Rubio triplets. And that's where I grew up with my family. We all lived above the bar, above the venue in these old hotel rooms. So like there wasn't a kitchen. We like would use the deep fryer or whatever. It was a really surreal place to be like a toddler. Very surreal. That's when I'm glad you mentioned to be a toddler because that's kind of like when I asked about little Shane, I just kind of, I don't know, I can just sort of almost picture you toddling around the hallways and kind of in and out of the venue itself and behind the bar and like just being in this very ultimately adult world, like from the very, from the word go. But like no shade to my mom. She is amazing. But like, I remember being in like one of those little like baby walker things that like have the bumper around it that like in the 80s parents would just drop your kids in there and just know that like you couldn't get anything because of the bumpers. And my very first like thing that I remember are the snops bottles. I would bang them like drums in my little walker. So like my grandma would clean and I would just be like scooting across the dance floor or like whatever. It's really like, I think pretty like in line with like the things that I still find to be fun. Like she let me, I could reach my hand behind the jukebox and pull the quarters out from the night before because I was so little. And then I would re-put the quarters in and play songs and like dance while my grandma would clean up from the night before. Oh, I'm just all like, this actually sounds so cute. And there is something really, it's a multi-generational household. It sounds like in a way, very nurturing what you're describing, you know, and that there was a degree of freedom and that you were kind of, you know, raised by grandparents and parents. And it sounds like there's a, there's a really family vibe here. Yeah, definitely. And you know, like the darker parts, I was in bed, like, cause I'm a toddler. So like, I didn't see, I, I don't like really remember people being drunk as much or like, you know, not until later, but in that time in my life, it was more of this just like wonder world of like fun and music and loud and lighting and like weird posters and neon signs. And, you know, it's really, really kind of a unique situation. Absolutely. And so then at what sort of age did you start to become aware that alcohol was kind of a part and parcel of this environment and that people were drinking and that it was it was altering people's state and it was kind of changing the atmosphere? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say whenever we left. So obviously this isn't sustainable. So around like maybe six or seven we left and we moved close, but that's when like my parents got to four. I could really see the weight of what this place was doing on my family. Uh, my grandpa lost the bar because he was um, doing these like shady auctions in the back. He had another wife and kids with this mystery woman that no one knew, like, and all of that, you know, like kids hear stuff. And like, I was piecing all this together and like, you know, this place that was so fun now was like this root of like my very first consciousness of like shame and despair and cheating. And like all of that stuff came whenever I started to like, you know, be more present, like outside of the space. Yeah, right. And I guess the age you're describing, like age seven is such a kind of de- a key developmental stage just in terms of your real consciousness around like oh my family is a family and other fa- there are other families <laughs> like you know perhaps the way that I've been raised isn't quote unquote 
normal. Oh, what does it look like at my friends' houses? And why don't they have jukeboxes in their living room and like <laughs> drunk men stumbling around or whatever it might be? Yeah. I also started school, right? Because like, I always say this was like an 80s thing, but like cousins were huge. Like it was just my cousins and me. I didn't really have a whole lot of people outside of our family. And if they were outside, they'd been around my whole life, you know? So when I went to school and realized like other kids weren't supposed to play with me because I was from like a bad family, like that kind of stuff. So all that happens like right at the same time, you know? So that was like really interesting. Cause like, I think we'll get into this a little bit later, but like a lot of shame all started right around this time period. You know, whenever I always think about it, when you leave the bar, and like when you used to be drunk and you'd be having the best time of your life and sometimes you get outside that bar and you're just drunk and you're tired and you're like, oh shit, this was all like a facade. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, when that kind of a mentality. The magic, the magic spell is kind of broken once you're in the quote unquote real world again and you're sort of like slightly brought to in a way. Yeah, this is intense. Okay, so this you, so there's all this uncovering of all this kind of like these family, this family history, and then your parents separating as well, which is, again, I, I remember speaking this about this with someone on the last series. I think divorce sort of became so normalized in the 80s and 90s that so many of us who come from divorced families, it's like it was just normal. Everyone's parents are divorced. And I don't think that we've necessarily given it the weight of kind of consideration in terms of that being a traumatic life event, you know? especially if you see the turbulence, right? Cause like, as a kid, I saw how much they fought. Mm. All I wanted was the fighting to stop. And if that would be them, like our unit breaking in order to just not have that turbulence, I'd take that a hundred times over, yeah. but I never let the weight of like that, you know, other people out there, you know, they don't have this dynamic. They don't have to pick like yeah. turbulence or a broken family. And that's really a kind of a hard pill to swallow. Right. Exactly. And when I say divorce being, I kind of, I guess I'm, I'm speaking to that, that sort of um, just this dysfunction, dysfunctional family, actually we've dysfunctional, what has been, what is called dysfunctional is actually passed as very kind of normal behavior in many families for such a long time totally my partner and I always talk about like the sitcoms from the 90s how dysfunction and snarky and like bit like married with children and like all like Roseanne like all of it was turbulent and like kind of toxic and like that was what we were kind of watching you know and living like it, it, it this stemmed because we were watching shows where every all the teenagers are rich now but when we were younger, like money struggles were part of the sitcom, like and uh, struggles in general. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it was such a different time. That's very interesting. And in a way, it's like, yeah, degree of family dysfunction, I do think is kind of normal because when you get a bunch of human beings all sort of living together, then of course, conflicts are going to arise. I guess what hopefully we're going to be able to get better at is mediating those conflicts and protecting ourselves from the worst of the kind of impact of it all this is a we've got a little bit of a tangent here I want to hear about your want to hear about your kind of your booze story you know and at what what age did kind of alcohol come into your life as um a salve perhaps for some of the the shame that you can now recognize that you were feeling that you were probably completely unaware of at the time yeah so I, I you know I think I was thinking about this the other day when I was working on an essay like I, I really don't remember drinking a whole lot until about 20, 
like right before I was about to turn 21, like as soon as I could, I started working in bars. So the minute I went to college, like I went to college early, like 17. And then as soon as I did, I was like, I need to be in a bar. So I like was a bar back. And then I was actually a stripper for a really long time. I mean, like years, I like was either a bartender or a dancer or whatever. And that like kind of really took it to a different level. Um, but that's whenever I really started to drink um, socially, for sure. So you started drinking when you started working in bars? Yeah, because it's just access. And I, I wasn't old enough to buy it. So like it was just a way to like be completely surrounded by. And, you know, it felt like home. Right. So like when I was displaced and in a new city and all of that stuff, that was the one thing that I knew that I kind of had that I could kind of like excel in because I come from a family of people who excel in a bar, you know? Like you say, it was comfortable. You know that environment, you know, I guess you've got, you've got a sort of an intrinsic understanding of what creates, what makes a good party, right? Like what is entertaining and what like creates a good vibe in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And that's when, you know, that's also when I noticed like drugs coming into the picture, but also like, the crying and the sad because I think like I am a sad drunk like it's all good to a certain point and then after that you know um, I would never really know until much later in my 30s I wouldn't really understand why I was sad I would just cry I would like really be wounded at a certain point when I would drink if I wasn't working right right and was that unusual among your kind of friend group or yeah did you but you didn't really question it you know, I was so ashamed of like where I came from too. Like Mm. Ruby, this is hilarious. Also so strange, but I remember the first week of college when I was like talking to people and getting to know them. And like about a week in, I was like, whoa, this does not sound like my story. Like I didn't even know people like paid to go to school. Like I thought if it was on your bus route, like that's the school you went to, like no big deal. And then when I was meeting kids from private schools and like all of that stuff, I realized like how in the dark I had really been or like how different my family really was than them. And so like, I was so afraid to point out any differences between myself and other people that like, I wouldn't have pointed out that I was sad, you know? Right. So so were you, so when you, so when you, so when you, when you first started, when you first started drinking and you found yourself in these environments and you've, you've had this sense of sort of like, okay, this is like my, my comfort zone. I know I, and I guess there's a sense I'm getting a strong sense of like, I know I fit in here. Yeah, for sure. What sort of a, what, what kind of a, a, a solution was alcohol providing for you at that point? Was it, was it like an immediate love affair with alcohol or was it like a, yeah, this is just something I do because it's part and parcel of being in this part of the scene or whatever it was almost like I had never even had to start it. It's just always been a part of my life. Mm. Like even the way that people in, you know, these small dark towns, they can't afford therapy or vacation. They just get it in a bottle. And so knowing that, you know, also being a a gay boy in the nineties, like it was getting better, but it still wasn't like, I mean, there was still Matthew Shepard, the AIDS crisis, like was still going like, it was still a scary time. So like merging all that stuff together was just a social lubricant, Mm. emotional lubricant just to the times Mm. and just growing up. Yeah. Right. So at what point in your sort of, um, 
drinking history, I suppose. Did you begin to get sober curious? It doesn't sound like it was particularly dramatic, your drinking from the get-go. You would drink, you would probably get a bit sad by the end of the night, and it was just kind of part and parcel of like, this is just who I am and this is just the way life is. Whilst all the while there's this kind of cocktail of sort of shame, some fear as well around your queer identity as well. And then, but perhaps not so much conscious awareness of that. So did your, did you, did your drinking get kind of like, did you find you were drinking more over time? I mean, I remember, you know, I, I, I remember you sharing with me that you, you, wouldn't, you weren't like a blackout drunk, like it didn't ever hit a really yeah. kind of big rock bottom. But did it progress? Did you progressively find you, you were drinking more or needing more or wanting more? Well, not particularly. Yeah, when you're a bartender, I mean, like, your tolerance is, like, above and beyond, (laughs) like, especially because it's free, and I always worked in, like, clubby, kind of divey, you know, very much that, like, early uh, 2010s New York kind of vibe, like, that hilarious meme of, like, kids losing their shit to Passion Pit in a basement in Brooklyn, like, very much that vibe, and so with that, yeah, but you're 100% right, like, I have very limited memories of being a mess when I was drunk, Mm. but like there would be shame for other things like spending rent money or um, maybe hooking up with someone I didn't want to hook up with. Or, you know, there were a few moments of that, but it wasn't like ever um, completely out of control. Mm. It just, as I got older, it wasn't who I wanted to be, Mm. but I couldn't necessarily stop being that person. Right. That's interesting. And so just quickly sort of pausing here for a moment, were there other drugs involved? Like I feel like London is is mirrors New York in many ways. And the nightlife in London around 2010, like late kind of noughties was very heavily cocaine oriented. Like there was just a lot of hardcore drug use, um, particularly also in the gay community. I know there was a lot of meth use and a lot of like all of that kind of stuff going on too. Was that, was that, part of was that coming into the mix yeah drugs are a big part of my story but they were always relatively casual and like they were always the counterbalance the drinking for a night out like the cocaine would counterbalance the alcohol and you I think that's a large part of why I wasn't that messy most of the time is because I was just numbed both ways Mm -hmm. by this like cocktail and then once I started dropping the cocaine like then the drinking got a little sloppier because I mean like you know, alcohol is a messy, is a messy uh, substance. So yeah, like definitely tons of Molly and dance parties, but Ruby, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Like, I don't regret that part. Cause it was kind of fun back in the day. Not that like I'm proposing people go out and do that, but I mean, like, you know, I like to keep a very even lens on looking back at my history with this stuff, because I do not have all bad I don't even think I have one fourth bad. I'm a different person now. And like, I am who I am because of so many of my crazy experiences. I, and that's what drew me to you because I remember reading your book um, and just getting the vibe that you didn't regret it all. And like, when I read other things, I like can't, we've talked about this so many times with that, like drunk torture porn, where it's like a whole book of someone regretting their life. Like, is really hard for me to swallow. And I am not that guy at all. I I do feel, and yeah, I don't, I don't regret, not because all the experiences were all good and not that there weren't painful experiences and not that I certainly wasn't, um, 
in a very confused place and in a very a place of a lot of low self-esteem a lot of the time when I was using. However, I think that all of my experiences made me who I am and I value all of them. And, I, and I've been thinking a lot recently about the concept of acceptance and how much inner peace we can find when we're able to just kind of accept whatever has been and go, you know what, what's been has been, here I am, I'm great. And like, where are we going from here? You know, and I also think, yes, and I have spoken about this on other episodes, and I do believe we'll see more conversations coming out around like the toxicity, not just physically, but also mentally and emotionally of different substances. You know, the fact that MDMA therapy is now, you know, there are being tons of studies done around therapeutic use of essentially Molly. (laughs) It's like, Mm -hmm. yes, that makes a lot of sense to me because actually when I was a teenager and I was using that substance, I had some really kind of profound, what felt like, if I look back now, what felt like real kind of moments of insight and healing about myself and my life and my place in the world. And, but in such a strange and unhealthy kind of setting and context a lot of the time. So I'm actually really excited and interested in developments in that area because the thought because I because I know how powerful that substance can be um so the thought of taking that into a therapeutic kind of controlled environment I'm very interested in and that said I also had a great time like dancing my ass off at raves you know yeah because it felt like therapy sometimes you know what I mean like sometimes I feel like that's where I really learned who I was uh where I wasn't like I've been so protective of my self and my image and all of that stuff for so long that you know just me and some good music on a dance floor is one thing it's 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 really surreal too to like look back at this journey with substance and look back at this journey with alcohol and like really see what the big culprits were for me they were pills which is like it took me forever to realize that like pills were my big problem it was such a problem that I buried it so deep that I never let myself realize, even through AA, even through all the work that I did, it was like somewhere where I started feeling really happy in my life. And I would see like, I don't know, just pills in someone's house or something. And I would like, like tense up and be like pills. Like, and I realized like, Hey, that's not normal. Like that's not a normal response to this. Even my anxiety sorry, this is kind of rambling, but I promise I'm getting somewhere. Even like my anxiety, I've recently started um, kind of micro dosing THC um, gummies a little bit because I can't do um, Xanax. I can't do uh, any of those. Like I'm just not a pill person, but like to be able to chew on a little bit of a gummy or whatever, and like nothing crazy happens to me. I realized like it's uh, the abusing, you know, it's the, uh, the abuse of the substance. And for me, it's, I just cannot mess with pills of any shape or form other than like Tylenol. Right. Okay. So we're halfway through the interview. So now let's pivot into this because I, you know, to backtrack a bit, I was asking at what point did you start thinking maybe this is not long, no longer right for me. Maybe this is no longer me, you describe you, you, I think you said, you know, this no longer felt like it was who I wanted to be. So take us back to that moment. What was going on for you in your life at that moment? And then we can look at the different, the different substances and, and how they're impacting you. I had went to a, um, you know, this was like right around where Instagram started taking off. My partner had a lot of followers. He's a DJ. 
Um, and I had made a very large mess of the situation. This is like my biggest mess I've ever made drinking. I made a scene. I embarrassed myself. I, and I didn't, you know what I mean? And I got home and I was just like mortified. And then I just did some deep thinking of like all of it. Like, I can't do this. I don't want kids. I, I, you know, my career is going around like great. So what do I do? I can't, this can't be it. I can't be a party boy. I'm getting older. It doesn't feel right. My body hurts. I feel sick. So who am I without this? And that's where I stumbled into the sober curious writing workshops back in the day. I met you, I started to explore and I just was getting flashes of this charming guy that was inside of me that I used to be before all this stuff made me cloudy and I just wanted to bring him to the party every possible chance I could. And so like by reaching in and trying to summon him, I realized that he was there at 11 o'clock on a Sunday or he was there after he went for a two mile run or whatever the case was. He wasn't there at Mr. Chow's or he wasn't there at Nobu or wherever I was. And like just trying to get him to come out like a genie in the lamp was like my goal. And I knew that was through sober curiosity. Right. So by this point, you're living quite a, a glamorous life. You're working as a makeup artist. So you're in the kind of like fashion and music scene. And so I guess, yeah, like you say, you've you've transitioned into a life where actually maybe my actions have more um I need to take more responsibility for my actions, for how I'm presenting in the world, for how I'm showing up for different people in different situations. And I love the way you described, like, I realized that there was this actually quite charming, just nice, good guy who could show up, do a really good job, be the one everyone wants to talk to at the party. But actually, he's not drunk me. Like, yeah. <laughs> a lot of the time we're using, I feel like, I think it's really interesting because, and I'll, I'll speak for myself but a lot of the times we're using alcohol to kind of like summon that, that, that nice, that nice guy that everyone wants to talk to. But you realized that the nice guy was there when you were sober. Totally. I was just a stereotypical bitchy gay guy when I got drunk. And oh, this is like the moment this, I remember the like tipping point of this was um, I've always loved Drew Barrymore. I'm like 38. So like Drew Barrymore has just always been it for me. Like, and we somehow got this invite to a party with Drew Barrymore. She was like in the crowd, like so cool. And I was so fixated on the bar lines that I like barely even paid any attention to her. Like, and, and I realized like I'm in the most beautiful, it was this like place I'd never been to. It was glamorous. It was beautiful. Drew Barrymore was there. And all I wanted was another drink. Mm. And I was like, this is just, this is not who I want to be. This is not because what happens, Ruby, and you write about this in the book, right? Like at a certain point, like, you know how everyone always complains celebrities get stuff for free when they don't need anything for free because they have more money than the average person It's the same with being a party boy or a party girl. Like your level of access at this point is we're everywhere. We didn't pay for much. Like, and it makes you so goddamn numb to like everything because you know, you're just being thrown at things and there's no value placed on it. And like, it gets sad and it gets dark because where do you go? There's a certain point where like, you're not elevating or getting deeper or anything like that. You're just literally like in this space, drunk and crabby. Yeah, it definitely. Well, in that kind of media scene where it's very much kind of, and what you're describing is what I talk about in the book, where it's like, as a journalist, 
every night of the week I could go to an event where it would be free drinks. And so I completely, I developed a really high tolerance to alcohol and also didn't really realize the financial consequence of drinking. Like I probably, if I was paying for all those drinks, I probably would never have been able to get as drunk as I did or like drink as much as I did or develop the depth of a habit that I did. But because, and it, for me, it culminated when I did my summer working in Ibiza, like I was editing this fucking cool magazine in Ibiza where the drinks are literally like, you know, it's 10 euros for a, a small bottle of water, let alone a beer. It's like 15, 20 euros, but I'm, you know, on every guest list and the, the drinks are all free. And it just is so, there's something really kind of gross about it because on the other hand, your, your presence, you're kind of being used in the same way that, you know, when we're on social media platforms and we're spending all of our time there and we're totally transfixed, we are the product because without us and without our content, without our constant presence on those platforms, the owners wouldn't be making their trillions. So in a way, we're sort of like our presence as these kind of quote unquote party people is sort of helping feeding that whole machine as well, which is a bit kind of gross to think about. So tell me totally. what you, so tell me, you, I know you did go to some AA meetings in the beginning. What was that experience like? Yeah, the beginning is and then not that long ago, like the beginning of the pandemic, I went back a little bit because I just couldn't hear my story, Ruby. Like I kept listening for someone to tell something that sounded like me or somewhere along the lines of like what I was going through. And it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't in the step program. Um, I think the step program is amazing because there are people out there who maybe can't afford some therapy or to get help or to even dive deep and it's available to them at no cost. That's so important. But for me, when I sat there and I would hear like, you know, I burnt down my house or I like whatever these super intense stories where I was like, well, that's not me. I just like, I'm drinking a little too much. And then that's kind of why I think I stuck so long with Sober Curious is because it was the closest to my story and it was a soft program. And that's what I needed, right? Was I needed exploration. I didn't necessarily need those hardcore roles. Yeah, right. Um, and the hardcore accountability, which again, some people find so much value in, you know, just that very, but well, I can think we this, talk about that? Yeah, let's talk about oh, that. Sorry. Go for it. So, I mean, I um, help you with the Sober Curious Facebook group uh, as an admin. And that is the one thing that I see over and over and over. And if I could like wave my, my magic wand is people are so hard, so hard on themselves at the beginning. Like they don't really take into account how hard this really is, how, you know, kind of like soft and gentle they need to be with themselves in the very beginning of this program, like if you can't make it five days, that's okay. Try for two, try for five, try for another three. Like, and that's why we, I feel like we spend so much time really just trying to encourage and coach people like to be gentle and like learn what's going to work because Ruby, it took me years. I mean, years of trial and error, like, and I would go like six months and then I would drink for six months and I would go three months and then I would go a week and then I would go nine more. And like, it was just this constant thing, but that's what I had to do to be able to make the choice because I don't think we've said this yet, but I'm not 100% sober. I'm mostly sober, but I don't even put any weight if I have a glass of champagne. I don't put any like, because it's just not a massive part of my life anymore. I'm pausing the episode here to tell you about Curious Elixirs, who make booze-free craft cocktails infused with adaptogens to help you unwind. 
and they're on a mission to create the world's most sophisticated cocktails without the alcohol. Whether you're sober sober, sober curious, or you're joining in with Dry January this year for a month off booze, Curious Elixirs are a fantastic option for any occasion. If your New Year's resolutions also include cutting back on your sugar intake, you might want to check out Curious Number no. 3, a light and floral booze-free cocktail evoking the cucumber collins. But no matter which variety you choose, every Curious Elixir is handcrafted with organic ingredients and no refined sugar. They also have the added benefit of adaptogens and plants to help you relax and de-stress without the hangover. Order Curious Elixirs online and have them shipped directly to your door at CuriousElixirs.com, where you can also sign up to the subscribers-only Curious Cocktail Club to ensure your fridge stays stocked. You can also get $10 off orders over $50 with the code RUBY22. Now back to the episode. Yeah, right. Well, we can definitely, let's go on and talk a bit more about that. But what you're describing about trial and error, I've heard it time and time again. And that's been my, that's been my path as well. I mean, truly, like, and I do actually, I've come to the point and yet even in, in the first Sober Curious book, I kind of talk about, it's not a relapse, it's a reminder. And I believe that even more strongly now than I did when I was writing that book in 2017, which I think must be around the time that we met. Was it 2017 that I was doing that? The book wasn't out yet. Right. So yeah, it was 2017 when I was doing the Sober Curious Writers Group. But um, even more so, I've actually come to believe that for, for some of us, that is, those are the lessons that we need. It's not even that they're reminders. We actually, you actually need to go through that process of like coming out, evaluating, getting conscious, doing, doing your deep dives, having your therapy, whatever it might be, going back, touching, touching the fire again. Ouch, ouch, yeah, that still hurts. <laughs> Sometimes we need, we need several of those reminders over a long period of time so that we can actually truly learn for ourselves rather than someone telling us we need to learn it. We almost like to live it ourselves. Ouch. No, that hurts. Actually. That's not, that's not for me. You know, do you feel that way about sobriety too? What do you mean? I've been miserable. Like, I think that's very much too like, okay, this feels good. No, this doesn't feel good. Like how to do it, how to be sober and mm. like live your life and not just swirl around the fact you're not drinking. Mm. Like it took me so long to realize that like, I just don't, I just don't want to be outside of my house after 10 PM anymore. Like, I just don't want it. I don't want to do it. There are certain people I don't want to be around. And it's the reason that I'm miserable and fixating on a drink in those moments is because I don't want to be there. So I, I am a grown man with all the options in the world to not have to stay. Yeah. And that's, God, is that beautiful? That's like the best part, right? Yeah. Is realizing how much of a people pleaser I was and how many situations I put myself into that I didn't want to be into, therefore drinking because I didn't want to be there or I couldn't extend it or I'm tired. I mean, I get up at 5.30 and I go to the gym. I work super hard on my like normal career, on all the extra stuff I have to do. I go to dinners. I entertain people. Like I can go home at 10 o'clock. I don't owe anyone like that I have to stay out and like people please them. No, I completely agree with you. And that's, again, it's almost like, yes, so, so yeah, going back to the fire, putting my hand on the alcohol and going, ouch, but also going back to the fire, putting my hand on the like, oh, this buzzy kind of event where I'm going to have to be on and talk to lots of people I don't know. Ouch, no, that, that's, that hurts too. That's painful too. Yeah. That's not for me too. 
if I'm not drinking. Absolutely. And I do, I mean, I definitely think that's part of just kind of, that's part of growing older. I wonder if 20 something me would have felt the same. Um, and certainly again, in the earlier days of sober curiosity, I definitely did have some great experiences at clubs and dance parties sober and discovering that I could dance sober was definitely such a, uh, such a gift. Cause I really thought that that might just be off the table for me if I didn't drink. And so again, going there, feeling the, feeling the fear going, hitting the dance floor anyway, without alcohol was really freeing, you know, because I really felt like, okay, if I ever really get the urge <laughs> Which is why there's a party in um, New York called Mr. Sunday. It's like a Sunday yeah. afternoon party. And they they okay. haven't been on since the pandemic, but I'm kind of like, please next summer bring back Mr. Sunday because it's like midday till like 8 p.m. or something. Like, that is that's perfect for me now. You know? Yeah, I agree. It's it's like you're just refinding yourself. I mean, as cliche as that sounds, like you know, you uh, we numb to to do so much that like when you take that away, like you know, I get a lot from the gym. Like mm-hmm. I, I used to hate when I would hear people say this, but it's true. You know what I mean? Like being able to naturally raise your energy or endorphins, like all of that stuff yeah. is really helpful for me to like push through the day and, you know, kind of get where I need to mentally. Yeah. I completely agree. It's such a great stress reliever, which is, um, counterintuitive because there's so much messaging around working out as like the whole no pain no gain like this is going to be tough it's going to be painful it's like oh no <laughs> no it feels no, great no. it feels fucking great yeah. so okay so you're so you're in this process of reevaluation you've been to some aa meetings you've come to my sober curious writers group and you're kind of like in and out at what point do you discover I'm trying to think where to go from here. Let's go to, because I remember you, you were working with a therapist where you started working with a therapist who had what you described to me as a harm reduction approach. Now you were yep. actually the first person, I think, who used that language to dis- to describe your kind of the approach that you were trying out with alcohol and other substances. Now I since had um, a, a harm reduction expert come on the podcast and talk all about it, Jen Elizabeth. And it's one of my favorite episodes. Episode. She's amazing. <laughs> And she's talking about people who are experienced, who are unhoused, who are, you know, who are longtime sex workers and maybe living what might people might think of as quote unquote, quite extreme lives. But I think harm reduction can apply to, to any, anyone, right. Wherever we're at in terms of our level of addiction and wherever we're at in terms of the level of consequences that we've experienced as a result. So could you, could you explain what harm reduction means and looks like for you? Yeah. So I had started with a new therapist uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, And he specialized in harm reduction, which is something I've heard of when it came to exactly what you said, like needle exchanges, like really intense stuff. And halfway through, like, I don't know, maybe our fourth section, he was like, you know, I have to say something that's going to come as a shock to you, but I really don't think that you are an alcoholic. And, you know, I was like, yes, I am. You don't know me. I'm an alcoholic. And he was like, I think you sometimes abuse alcohol. And I like had this aha moment of like, oh my gosh, absolutely. And as we dove in deeper and he opened up to me, like harm reduction could be, you know, you don't do Coke when you drink. 
And then, you know, you make it so far and then you don't, you know, you have four drinks or whatever the case is. He's like, you scale back until you find your comfort or you scale back until you're not harming yourself anymore. And he really, we dove into it for a long time for many, many sessions, probably like a year and a half and finally got to the root of all the secrets I had to keep as a young boy. Mm. Um, and like, what a crazy map, right? So I'm talking as this successful guy, gay man who's, you know, in my 30s, you know, who likes my life or whatever. And I'm going the whole way back to being like 10 years old and having to hide like some sexual trauma and like all of this stuff. And that, you know, drinking just helped me numb the man that I was today and kind of like, you know, hush the inner child that's barking at me. And all of that we did through an approach where he was like, okay, Shane, so start drinking. I did. And nothing happened because it was a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Nothing bad happened. I drank, I did stuff. I just felt sick. I was like, ugh, I feel sick. My stomach hates this. And he's like, well, then that's harmful. I'd be like, you know, you're right. And I learned that like drinking at home, like I don't enjoy it that I was using it as a social lubricant. Right. And so if that makes any sense, obviously I'm not an expert here on harm reduction, but if that makes sense, I was learning that the harm I was causing through this like trial and error process. That's very interesting. And I think that in a way like it, people, people talk a lot and they talk a lot in the sober curious Facebook group around moderation and trying to moderate. But what you're talking is, talking about is, is quite different, I think, because it sounds extremely intentional and you have yeah. someone guiding you through it. You have someone checking in with you person to person, week in, week out. So what's going on? So why did you want to have a drink this week? So how was it when you had a drink this week? Which is helping you gain awareness around like the real, the true impact like you described of alcohol on your body, your psyche, your emotional life et cetera, et cetera, as well as identifying the kind of key triggers for what I'm going to make, what, what, why am I reaching for a drink in this moment? Moderation is the hardest, like yeah. sobriety is easier than moderation because that's where it's such a, even now, I don't even say that I moderate because I, it's so calculated and thought out before I do it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I really like plan, like, is this worth it? Is it okay? Am I mentally in the right space to do this? Like, I really do have to ask myself those questions. And again, if I do it, even if I would get drunk, like I, I'm fine with that. I'm at a place where I'm fine with that. I just choose to not do it most of the time. Mm -hmm. And like, it's moderation is just, it's tricky because you're, you're, I mean, you're drinking a substance that's lowering your heart. Yeah. So it's insanely hard to make the right choices because you, you, you know what I mean? You're just going with the moment. Well, the other thing with moderation is it generally involves rules that are like this day of the week or this kind of alcohol or these many drinks. Whereas, and I guess you, you know, I guess, so full disclaimer, I occasionally have a drink and it's literally a drink. And it's never something that's planned. It's always in the moment of like, oh, a drink. Maybe I'll have it. And so I assess in that moment, how many, how is it? Like all of the things that you just described, right? But I'm not thinking, oh, it's the third Saturday of the month and that's my drinking day. And then obsessing for the other Saturdays of that month about that specific Saturday and how much I'm going to drink and how I'm going to feel and how I'm going to feel after it. And, blah, blah, blah. and it just takes up so much energy to be constantly planning 
when you're going to be drinking and how you're going to be drinking and how you're going to feel after the drinking, that it's just, like you say, so much easier to just have it completely off the table and then assess on a case by case. And it's so much work prior, right? Like we're not new to this. We've been yes. doing it for oh my God. years. Exactly. And like, that's, that's the big thing that I can't tell people enough is you have to, in the beginning, go a good length of time without it. Yeah. Maybe several times before you can really start to make the right choices for you. Yeah. Because like, like I said, you know, we watch people be so hard on themselves all the time over this, but it does take work. And that's why I'm such a big fan of your reset. And that's why I tell so many people to do it because you really do need to reset. Mm -hmm. Like you really do need to reset your mind. You need to make it through a couple months, a couple scenarios, a couple situations, a birthday, a big event, a holiday. Like, I think we talked about this before. There's always a holiday in a hundred days of some sort. That's hard. And like really learning how to do that before you can make the choice, because what's, what's nuts now, Ruby is like, I know I just said that I really do think before that, let me clarify that. I mean, like if I'm going to go celebrate and have multiple drinks for an event or something like that, I really think it out, but I'm to the point now where it's not on my radar is the most important thing in my mindset. Yeah. Like, and that took forever and that's where I'm the happiest. Yeah. And you know, this is kind of a new thing. Like for so long, it was AA or nothing or like whatever the case is. And just for people to explore that there's a hundred different ways you can have relationships with alcohol. Yeah, exactly. And it's really about figuring out what works for you. And this is why I always say like the sober curious approach is not prescriptive. Don't come to me if you want like a program that's going to be like do A, B and C and you're going to be free of your your attachment to alcohol. It's not, I, I can't tell you. I can't tell you how your body, your mind responds to this substance. I don't know anything about your history of trauma and how all of that might be impacting your choices around substance use today. It's just like you have, the only person who can figure that out is you. And the only way you can figure it out is like you said, long period of abstinence, constant conscious awareness around what's coming up for you in relation to this subject and substance or subject. And yeah, it's work, but it's so worth it. Right. I would love to hear while we still have a bit of time because I remember actually that, yeah, you mentioned to me something about pills, but we didn't really ever go into like how you kind of uncovered that that was the, Oh, that's actually the thing that I have the real charge around you know? And when you say pills, you're talking about prescription medication, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Someone very close to me uh, and very trusted has a very rough opioid addiction um, and has for a very long time. That person would always give me pills And because I wanted acceptance from that person, I would take them. I wouldn't actually take them. I would just take them when that person handed them to me. Um, Well, then I started to take them. And it never dawned on me what I was doing, which sounds absolutely crazy. But because I put this person on such a pedestal and that person is very heavily addicted and I can't like gauge the right and wrong of it all. It's all still very hard for me to sometimes talk about. And I would just start taking them. And I realized that I could take them and work. I could take them and drive. I could take them that. And then a few years later, I was buying 300 
pills for $700 and they were all gone in a month. And I, not a single person in my life called me out. No one had known. Um, and it was terrifying. Mm. Like when I look back at taking like seven Vicodin and driving my convertible, like three hours, like what a terrifying, scary predicament. And then I didn't even know when I would detox. So like if I would run out or whatever, I'd be so sick. I would be like crippled on the floor. And then slowly but surely, I lost my dealer, which was the best thing that ever happened to me. He got arrested. And I had no way to do this. So I had to hardcore detox. And then through that detox, um, it was two months of hell, absolute utter hell. Um, I lost a job in that time period. Like it was just absolutely insane. I... um I looked back and I was like, how am I alive? How is this me? You know what I mean? Mm. Like, and the fact that that wasn't even like front and center in my story, but because I kicked it, I just wanted it out of my mind. Right. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing. I didn't know that it had got so, it had got so extreme for you. And it's just an illustration of how insidious because you can function in the world on this medication. Mm -hmm. It's not like you said before, alcohol is a messy substance. You can't really get very far kind of as a functioning human if you're drinking day in, day out, you know, but you can on these meds. Yeah. And I, I would like space them out. I knew exactly what would happen. I knew exactly when to eat. I knew all of that stuff. And just to be clear, this was about a time period of like a year, right? Let's just say around a year Mm -hmm. and then like casual use if they were around or whatever. But I mean, it's so scary because like to think that people take these every day in the world, like obviously we know that it's a huge problem in America, a huge problem all over, but it's just the most terrifying thing in the world that I can really, and I would just drink the entire time I would do it too. I'd wet the bed. Like it was just absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Wow. Shane, I'm sorry you experienced that, but I'm so happy that your dealer got arrested. And so you hadn't ever got into the kind of the loop of having a prescription and being able to get that refilled. And yeah, what a, yeah, that's a lucky escape. It sounds like. So was this, was that before you got sober curious or kind of in the same time frame? Yeah. Before. Yeah. But what I realized is like, I had to deal with that on top of it. So, you know, through harm. So maybe this will make a little more sense now. And then through the harm, we got there. Right. So we went to the shame. We went to this person in my life. And then from that person, we went to the pills. Then we like stayed in the pills and then went to the alcohol to reassure that it was the pills. With the harm reduction therapist, you mean? So you were focusing on those different, like the relationship with this person was what kind of triggered the pill situation. Then it was like looking at the pills. Why am I using the pills? What's going on here? Then looking at alcohol as a separate substance kind of laying on top of that. Right. Ruby, this is going to sound crazy. I, because I, I wasn't doing the pills anymore. Right. Uh, they weren't even on my radar. Like, why would I talk about them? I kicked those. Like, why would I do this? But then once I discovered I had shame, this person helps me keep that shame very tight. And then I used the pills from this person because I thought it was safe, but none of the things, the shame wasn't safe. None of that was safe. Yeah. So then once I took that off the table, He's like, so do you really have a problem drinking? And I was like, uh, no, no. 
No, I don't. I don't think I'm an alcoholic. I think I abuse it sometimes to replace these pills that I took out of my life. Wow. This actually is making sense. Because even in the beginning, when I was asking you about like your drinking history, I had sort of made assumptions, I think, because I knew you grew up in this kind of bar environment that perhaps you'd started drinking young and become attached to it young. And then like it had developed from there. But when you described to me just now, I love the fact we're having this conversation for the first time properly on the podcast, but like, I was kind of surprised at the lack of charge around your, the early drinking experiences that you described actually, you know? So yeah, totally Ruby, you're right. Because what I was addicted to, what I learned in that bar was how to get attention, how to get attention from guys, how to get attention from my parents, how to be this cute kid in a bar. The alcohol was there. And I knew that alcohol was part of it. But what I really became addicted to was counterbalancing my personal inner shame with getting attention from the outside world. So that's what fueled all this. That's what I then became a stripper because of the same reason. I then dated older men with money for the same reason. Like all of this stuff all came from this shame, just this immense shame I had from stuff that happened when I was younger. So the alcohol wasn't my main issue the entire time, but it was the one thing that I kept doing. Right. Like I wasn't a stripper anymore. I wasn't any of that stuff, but I like still had the alcohol. So I loaded all my shame into alcohol. That's why I cried. That's why I was sad. That's why all of this stuff. But if I didn't reach out for help, I would have never known that it was the pills ever. Right. This makes so much sense now. So everything is coming back to this shame. And this is, I talk about this, as you know, so much as being such a key part of anyone's sober curious path. What is the why? Why are you using this substance? What is it? What's it really stem from? What is the emotional need that this substance is fulfilling for you? For you, this is coming full circle now back to age six, seven years old. You're first realizing there's something wrong with me because I come from this family and there's something wrong with my family, you know? And then as you say, okay, so this feels like a good point to quote this short passage from your, from your birdie magazine article, which was titled, I took a step back from drinking and it changed my life. Okay. So you wrote as a gay man from a small town, I have shame, sexual trauma and abuse as part of my story and therefore part of my recovery. As I started to look at this and acknowledge it as part of who I am, I started working to heal. During this cognitive process, it became easier to make better choices with substances. My shame started to lift and I realized I was worth a life full of great choices, which I think there's like, I don't know, four sentences there, but it just so sums up what is the real core kind of healing part of this whole process, really uncovering, really having the courage ideally with someone by your side who can kind of guide you to that place safely. What is the root of this, this feeling of like, it's not okay to be me. We all have shame to a degree, you know, and you've described some experiences that means it's been pretty intense for you, you know? And so really getting down to that nugget of, mm. and then, as you say, doing the work to kind of just accept going back to that acceptance piece, this is all just part of my story. And so, of course, this is part of my recovery, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I like, when I wrote that, like, it really, I I had this memory of just being this like eight-year-old boy crying while my mom was getting ready. And she's like, what's wrong with you? And I would be like, I don't want to go to hell. And like, we're not religious at all. So she would be like, what? And I would just be like, I'm just so bad. Like, there's no other way for me. Like, I just am, you know, because I... 
um, a little bit of sexual abuse was happened prior to then. I was, you know, questioning like if I liked, but just all of this stuff was all a secret. I couldn't share with anyone. I just remember her hugging me and being like, you are like a perfect child. And just from that moment and the rest of my life, like I would use substances because I just thought that I was wired to be a bad kid, a bad boy, like, and it was in me from having a bad family, a quote unquote. Bad. Right. Thank you. Right. Mm. Oh, Ruby, thank you. Thank you for having me. Did well, I was like, look at how much better I am. Mm. I wasn't ever bad, mm. you know, but mm. just because I don't know, I didn't know how to process it. And it was back in the day that no one talked about this stuff yet. Yeah, you know? right. Well, yeah, we don't, we don't ever get taught how to process this stuff and we just find all these ways to medicate it instead, which is why this is such important work. And it's such hard work because it can be really painful to be confronted with those, those feelings, but it's the only way that we're ever going to accept ourselves, you know, and accept that actually, yeah, there's never been anything broken. There's never been anything wrong with me. And then as you say, well, then the charge is gone from the alcohol, from the pills, the charge is gone because it's like, I no need, I no longer need a salve. Like there's no longer this friction inside me that feels like it just needs some, a healing, a a balm or a salve over it, you know? Although, I mean, these are also, these are also physically addictive substances. And so we need to keep our guard up too. We need to be consciously aware Mm -hmm. that it can always come back in, you know, can always come back in. Always. I think about that all the time. Like even as an adult man, you know, as I got older and I've been in a relationship with my partner for 10 years, when we hit rough patches, I use alcohol a lot in that moment too, to like soften, to soften tension or to sell tension or whatever the case is. And just always checking in Ruby, like we talk about it constantly. It's the most important thing you can do is just always check in with your relationship. And, you know, it doesn't even have to be alcohol. Like shame is so dark and, you know, If you meet a gay man around their 30s, they're going to talk about a book called The Velvet Rage. If any of you out there have heard of it, it's crucial gay literature, LGBTQ plus all of it. It just talks about the shame that we keep inherently from having to hold a secret from the minute we realize. And I try to use my Instagram platform to talk about these things Mm. because I am extremely fortunate to have friends who help me do the work. I do the work. I explore. I you know, I, I read Jay Shetty. I do everything I can to be a good person and I feel fortunate, but I do learn every day by me telling my story, someone out there, they might have an aha. They might realize that if they hear me say this story, which is dark, I mean, I don't think I've ever talked about the opioids out loud publicly like Mm -hmm. this. Um, and you know, I'm a pretty open person, but that's the one thing that's held very close to me. But just to see these boys in the Midwest or these young kids or whatever, just respond to hearing stories and opening their minds and knowing they're not alone, like so important. Yeah. Well, thank you. I deeply appreciate you, you going there today. I know that you are working on telling your story in a more concrete Mm -hmm. form. I've been fortunate enough to read some, some of the writing that you've been doing around this. Um, and yeah, we met when you came to the Sober Curious Writers Group, which no longer exists, um, may exist in some form in the future, who knows. But I do believe very strongly that writing is a very cathartic, 
and can be a very healing process, just really kind of acknowledging and owning, claiming in a way, claiming our story, you know, claiming the whole of ourself. Has that been the case for you? Do you find writing to be um, a healing tool? Uh, (laughs) Maybe like a long way around. It's definitely like diving in there and opening up these wounds has been not all wounds, but I mean the wounds specifically, like really diving in there and trying to remember things from the colors of the, the curtains to, you know, that kind of a thing is really a surreal experience. And then being able to view it with your adult mind, like what really happened is unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life. Like it's beautiful. It's traumatic. I will say like, I wasn't expecting, we talked about this. I think the last time that we spoke was I, I wasn't expecting it to affect me as much as it did like walking to get ice cream and a song came on and I just started crying and like, you know, just realizing that when you are doing this, you're really opening your, you're opening all the doors in your house. Like it's all flying around me now all the time, which is really therapeutic to be able to view it. And I take a lot of my writing with me to my therapy sessions and like kind of speak about different things and like how I remember it versus like how I used to remember it, like that kind of a thing. Yeah. It's definitely, you have to be in a safe space. (laughs) Absolutely. When you're really going there into the deep places, one of the hardest things I found is being able to look at things that I just took as normal as a kid and being able to look back and go, whoa, that shouldn't have been happening to a kid, you know? And that just having that adult realization about some of the experiences that we might have had as younger people can be very um, painful. Yeah. Painful is the mm-hmm. word I'll use. Yeah. Shane, what are some of the, you said, you said in that birdie piece um, that, you know, you've, as your shame has started to lift, you've realized that you are worth a life full of great choices. What are some of the great choices that you're making for yourself today? Oh, what a good question. I'm <laughs> um, writing this book. Uh, kind of realizing what I want and what I deserve, being able to unleash like this just power that I feel that I have inside to share my story has been really, really important. Um, Helping people, right? Like, I think that's why we're all here. Like, I don't know what else we're here for, but to make it easier on each other. And so just really trying to do that every day. Like, you know, my wellness practice is crucial to who I am and how I view people. Mm-hmm. By wellness practice, you, you shared about the gym, but you also, you have other practices. Yeah, I am like very dorky, like obsessed with Jay Shetty. Do you know him? <laughs> yes. I'd love to have him on the podcast. Let's try and find out how yeah, we can get to too. Jay Shetty. <laughs> totally. And, um, you know, he taught me to do this thing every morning before I reach for my phone. And I swear to you, not being cheesy, but it's life changing. Um, and it's about, you know, kind of, I'm going to misquote it because I'm nervous because I feel like it's weird that I'm obsessed with him. But <laughs> <laughs> it's about kind of obsessed with him. <laughs> no, I know. But that's why I usually like some like, you know, random monk from whatever, but he's just so smart and he's so integral. And I love how he speaks about being a modern man. And that's what I try to do is, you know, be there for the people that I love. But whenever you wake up, you know, you um, meditate, you do a gratitude list, you get your body moving 
and you set a plan for your day. And like those very simple four things have changed my life. Amazing. It sounds a lot like my mornings. <laughs> I can't even imagine aligned. what a Ruby Warrington morning was like. I imagine that the birds come in and they curl your hair and your dear friend picks out your outfit. And <laughs> oh my God. Your beautiful partner comes in with like coffee and he's like, good morning, Ruby. <laughs> I've made him breakfast in bed for like 15 years. So no, I get up, I meditate. The cat sits on me while I meditate. That's like one of my favorite things. I say a prayer for the day and then, um, then I start working. I'm, I'm on my laptop by 6.37 a.m. Yeah. Right, but how important are those little moments? Like mm. there's something I look forward to the minute I, my head touches the pillow the night before. Absolutely. Jane, thank you so much just for sharing your story here today, but also thank you for all your support um, and for being such a, for being part of this whole Sober Curious movement really since the beginning and for all the work you do moderating the Facebook group. Um, yeah, if people enjoyed this conversation, where can they find you to hear more? So you can find me, uh, same handle all around. It's Shana Fools. I had some hippie parents, so it's spelled weird. It's S-H-A-I-N-O-F-F-O-O-L-S. Shana Fools, that's my website. It's my Instagram handle. Those are my primary platforms. Love it. And I want to hear all about your book. You will, I'm sure. (laughs) Thanks, Shane. No problem, Ruby. That was my conversation with the lovely Shane Kish. You can find him interacting regularly in the Sober Curious Book Facebook group. If you're not already a part of that group, I definitely encourage you to join. It's one of my personal favorite places to be online and it is mega supportive for people at every stage of their sober curiosity. Maybe I'll see you there too. Thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with a friend and leave a review wherever you are listening as it just helps more people find the series. As always, this podcast features original music and is edited by alloaudio.com. That's A-L-O-E audio.com. 